The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. MSW Media. Happy holidays, everyone! Well, pour yourself a glass, sit for a spill. It's time to have some fun. Let's do a little thinking, some picking and a drinking. But this is what we're drinking with and done. She's right. That's Magdalena. She's my uh, new muse, and I'm Dan Dunn. Welcome to the show. It's almost over, 2019. You ready for 2020? I say bring it. I'm ready. I want to bring it on. So as you know, resolutions go hand in hand with the start of a new year, and dry January is one of the more popular New Year's challenges. Uh, in fact, millions of people all over the world are doing dry Januaries. Uh, it's, it even has its own Wikipedia page. That's how much of a thing it is. Um, if you go to that Wikipedia page, it says that the concept of sobriety, uh, like having a sobriety month at the start of the year, gained popularity in 2014 when the UK nonprofit Alcohol Concern came up with the booze-free challenge. But come on. You know, that idea dates back many years. It just certainly does for me. Uh, and I'll tell you that story in just a little bit. So dry January, it's simple. When you commit to one, you are swearing off booze for the entire month. Many reasons people do this uh, for their health, to reset, to lose weight, or just to see how their bodies feel without a bunch of booze swirling around inside of it. And these all sound like valid reasons, right? Ah, but there certainly isn't any consensus when it comes to the merits of dry January. I posed the question, uh, to dry January or not to dry January on my Facebook page. And the comments that I got back were all over the board. So you can dry my throat's a little dry on me. Oh, there we go. So one guy from the music business wrote, quote, 
I went clean and sober, including diet, last January while on a rock tour in Australia and New Zealand, and kept it going until May. It ain't easy to do any of that on tour. Basically, anything you want is available if you want it. But that willpower to say that I don't need any of it, that I am just fine having a water, that was magic that paid dividends a long time. I've never felt better in my life. Another guy commented, My knee-jerk answer is, I don't like it. If someone needs a month to take a break or reset, then maybe they're going too big the other 11 months. That's certainly a point to consider. I mean, what is inspiring it? What's making you do it? The questions you got to ask if you're going to do a dry January. Another person who works in the booze business chimed in. She said, I like it. I'm a fan of taking a break every now and then, but I totally think it's personal. I don't judge people who don't do it. I don't expect people to judge me for taking part, even though they totally do judge her, that is. It always surprises me. If I do decide to do a dry January, I get the most shit from people in the booze biz. No one outside that industry gives a shit. No, I don't know about that. I got lots of comments from people who aren't in the drinks business. Like this guy who said, If by dry January you mean a little less vermouth in my martinis, then sure, I'm all for it. Funny guys. I like them. Uh, several people opine that February is the best month to give up drinking because it's the shortest month of the year. And this brings me to this story of my adventure in temporarily going cold turkey. Uh, this is a story that happened years ago, right here where I'm at in Los Angeles, California. I have another drink here. Hmm. So I woke up naked on the dining room floor. It's bad enough in any case, but doubly so when you don't know whose dining room you're naked in. I tried to lift my head and winced. It was full of whiskey and regret. My eyes burned with a hot blue flame, and clearly Satan had taken a dump in my mouth at some point during the night. I was like the chorus to the most depressing Smith song ever written. The producer, I thought. That must be whose house this is. Oh, good. I'm hungover and naked in the dining room of a high-powered TV producer. This is just how I wanted this to play out. See, I'd been pitching him on a pilot I'd written about the hilarious and pathetic travails of a hard-living booze writer, naturally. And he'd seemed kind of interested. Wanted me to show him how this whole thing worked. This whole thing being the boozy caricature that passes for my social life. He wanted to go drinking. What was I going to say? No. I remember meeting him at Formosa Cafe. I think we ate something and had some drinks and left. Then things got fuzzy. I recall doing several Jaeger bombs at a dive bar off of Sunset Boulevard. This is not a good sign. If I was doing Jaeger bombs, something had gone seriously wrong. I hate Jaeger bombs almost as much as I hate Hollywood. So this guy had gotten several big-time shows on the air, and he'd read my first book, and thought my life could have juice as a scripted series. And now, I was naked on his floor. Excellent.
dear God. What was that? Bolts of pain swept majestically across my skull. That was a noise. My eyes darted to the doorway into what I figured to be the kitchen. There was someone in there. I painstakingly dragged myself a foot or so across the floor to get a better peek. A blonde woman in a bathrobe was sitting at the kitchen table drinking coffee and reading the paper. Had to be the producer's wife. A quick survey of the area told me that one of two things had happened. Either the producer's wife had entered the kitchen through the window over the sink, or she'd walked right by my naked ass sprawled out on her dining room floor. I wanted, in this order, a bottle of Advil, a glass of water, and a gun, all for use on my head. As I had none of these things, I needed to figure out what to do next. Bit of a conundrum. Save for a sock lying nearby, my clothes were nowhere in sight. There were doors, all closed save for the one in the kitchen and a staircase. I figured it was entirely likely there was a housekeeper or some children lurking around somewhere too, and my bladder was telling me that I needed to get to a restroom or potted plant post-haste. Which one of those doors led to a bathroom? Which is when I realized I had an even bigger problem. Or, rather, one problem that was bigger than it should have been. My penis, to be exact. I had a boner. And not your standard morning wood, either. This was a pee boner. I could hear some nightmare exterminator in my head explaining to a housewife who wanted to get rid of an infestation. No, ma'am, your typical pee boner typically sticks around until the urine has entirely left the premises. This morning, or was it this afternoon, was going swimmingly. Oh, another noise from the kitchen. Shit. The wife was on the move. I realized I was lying on an oriental rug. Maybe I can hide under it. Oh, mother of all divine fuck-ups, the rugs nailed to the floor. Stupid idea, anyway. I scrambled to my feet, seeing no option save a run for the front door. And when your best option appears to be taking to the streets of Los Angeles without any clothes on, you are the living embodiment of totally fucked. So you're a sleepwalker, a male voice said. Huh? It was the producer, smiling matter-of-factly as he handed my clothes. Did I detect a trace of pity? This seemed a tad odd to me. Was this something that happened often? Helping a naked stranger who's trying to rip a rug off his dining room floor while his wife eats breakfast 15 feet away? I said, it looks like you've been sleepwalking. Yeah, it does look that way, I replied, doesn't it? Can you fuck off on your own, he drawled, or do you need a hand? Oh, don't worry. I've done this before. It wasn't until he deposited me safely in a taxi that I had an epiphany. I should stop drinking. Not permanently, mind you. I'm not crazy. They say you've got to hit rock bottom before you quit for good, and frankly, for as unfortunate as this incident was from a professional standpoint, in my world, waking up naked in some high-powered Hollywood player's mansion is still on the good side of the divide between rock star and rock bottom. Still, my ego was sufficiently banged up from the experience that a temporary self-imposed booze ban seemed in order. Just to see what would happen. Actually, the thought of it energized me. I like challenges. Trouble was, my typical challenges involved trying to chug a beer faster than the guy next to me. Best to be realistic about this. I'd quit drinking for a full month. Long enough to count, but not so long I couldn't see the light at the end of the tunnel. Driving home, once I'd 
retrieved my car from where I'd evidently left it the night before, I looked in the rearview mirror and saw the eyes of a determined man, a man who'd been driven to extreme measures by extreme circumstances, like the Ving Rhames character in Pulp Fiction, about to get medieval on the asses of Zed and the Gimp. Barely missing a parked BMW, I set the mirror back, focused on driving, and found myself humming Dick Dale's Miserloo. Once home, I parked, hopped out, and raced up the stairs and into my apartment, with a newfound spring in my step. I was a man with a renewed sense of purpose. This was going to be great, just what the doctor ordered, and before the liver transplant team had even ordered it. I needed a break from the sauce, anyway, just to take stock. This hiatus was going to be the best thing I ever did. It was going to be liberating, cleansing even. Plus, it was February 1st, day one of the shortest month of the year. Two days later, I was staring down my home bar like a homeless dog looks at your steak dinner. I realized that if I had any hope of making it through the next 26 days, 3 hours, and 18 minutes, I had some serious preparations to make. Like what? Glad you asked. So here's how to prepare for a month on the wagon. Number one, provide just cause. Nothing helps kickstart a serious commitment to teetotalism like a blowout booze bender that leaves you feeling as though you've spent 14 hours getting skull-fucked by a horse. A giant, horny horse that learned to screw from watching rabbits. The kind that when you wake up next to the toilet, you discover your tongue has been replaced by a giant furry cat. Your eyes have been coated with gypsum plaster, and you've somehow acquired a second heartbeat inside your skull. You vomited profusely all night long and are sure to vomit again just as soon as you try to ingest any food or fluids or hear stuffs or breathe. On the F chance your wallet happens to still be in your possession, it will be light at least a credit card or two left behind it wherever the hell you continued partying after you blacked out. You'll have no idea, of course. When you feel this bad, the thought of leading an alcohol-free life is the single most comforting thought you've ever had. If only wicked hangovers lasted forever, maintaining sobriety would be a breeze. They don't, however, which is why point number two is so important. Point number two, talk it through. Separation anxiety can be a real bitch. So before going cold turkey, you need to remind yourself that everything is going to be okay. You can make it through this. It's not permanent. You may want to reassure your favorite booze that it's not over forever as well, like I did. Let Johnny Walker know it's you, not him. Tell him that in the long run, a little time away from each other could turn out to be the best thing that's ever happened in your relationship. If he continues to press you as to why you're doing this, you can cite the fact that you're currently engaged in emotional conversation with a bottle of scotch. This is as sure a sign you need a break as anything I can think of. If he can't sympathize with that, well, he's not right for you anyway. Number three, you've got to hide your love away. To limit temptation, you may want to remove any and all alcohol from your home, stored in a garage or some other place. This is easy enough for most folk, and lest said folk happen to be professional wine and spirits scribes, who receive upwards of 20 alcohol-laden review samples per week. 
It took the better part of my first day of sobriety to move barely half of my liquor supply to its temporary digs in my neighbor's shed. Then UPS arrived bearing a whole new shipment of bottles. I realized that bailing water was futile, given the size of this leak. Plus, my back was killing me, and it dawned on me that hiding the booze that I planned to eventually come back to was akin to the dubious strategy the AA folks have dubbed pulling a geographic. That's when a drunk decides it's not him, but rather his surroundings that are causing his drunkenness, and that all he needs to do in order to get straight is relocate to a new place, find a new job, and get some new friends. That never works. And plus, like I said, all that fruit, all the free booze I've got is really, really heavy. Mm. Number four, keep it to yourself. Telling your friends you've decided to not drink for any exterior uh, period of time is a bad idea because no matter what the reaction, it's likely going to suck. For instance, if you tell a friend you've decided to lay off the sauce and he responds with something along the lines of, that's the smartest decision you've made in a long time, you probably won't feel very smart. Plus, you'll realize your friend thinks you're a raging alcoholic. If, on the other hand, your friend, faced with the prospect of losing a boozing buddy, responds badly and tells you that that's the dumbest idea he's ever heard, you can rest assured that for the duration of your self-imposed abstinence, he will dangle drinking opportunities in front of you like they were bare boobs and you were a stack of dollar bills. Another possible scenario is that your friend will decide to join you in your temperance experiment, which will eventually lead both of you to the inevitable conclusion that devoid of the social lubricant that is alcohol, you don't really have much in common. Number five, don't punt on first down. One of the bigness, uh, biggest, if not the biggest challenges you'll face in going on the wagon is doing things for the first time that in the past have always involved alcohol consumption. Things such as going on a date, watching a sporting event, taking a vacation, having sex, spending time with your kids, summoning the will to get out of the bed in the morning. That sort of stuff. That first time you go it alone is when it really hits you just how much you've come to rely on booze to feel whole and how in many ways booze has become the dominant figure, the driving force, if you will, in the relationship it's a panicky feeling, not at all unlike what I imagine poor Andrew Ridgely must have experienced the day George Michael told him he was going solo. Thing is, no matter how uncertain, even terrified you feel the first time you do anything without booze, you have to remind yourself of something. While it's unlikely he will ever again achieve the level of fame and fortune he did with Wham! during their Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go heyday, or in all likelihood, even get recognized by anyone on the street. Andrew Ridgely is still standing. He even managed to hook up with the hottest member of Bananarama, who he's been with for 25 years. And as of this writing, he's never been arrested for blowing a stranger in public lavatory. And that's something, isn't it? Please, tell me that's something. Okay, so here's how my detox panned out. Day one was cake. I was a warrior. I could do this. No problem. I strutted around in a sort of superiority high that was all its own. Day two, however, was another story. Almost immediately upon waking up, I was struck by how very different my apartment felt. What was once my calming, comfortable sanctuary now seemed like a tomb, a trap, a lie. 
albeit a spacious, well-decorated tomb trap, lie replete with a well-thought-out color scheme, accent, track lighting, and hard-to-clean deco detailing. And it wasn't even drinking time yet. But I managed to crawl out of bed and up the expensive curved spiral staircase I'd had installed, all the while wondering whether one roll in the hay with that hot interior designer had really been worth all this. What are post-postmodern iron balusters anyway? And wouldn't the small fortune they cost me have been better spent on, say, helping the poor, or better yet, a long weekend in Vegas? Then again, I thought, she did give me a sweet deal on the brushed steel kitchen countertops. Back to bed. That's the idea. Back to bed. I call it a sick day. Once I was securely under the covers, though, sleep didn't seem to be in the cards. My mind was racing alternately panicking and cheering myself on. I could do this. It was February. Not only is it the shortest month on the calendar, but with the exception of the Super Bowl, there is nary a special occasion in February that calls for alcohol consumption. March, on the other hand, has Fat Tuesday, the NCAA Tournament, St. Patrick's Day, the Bernal Equinox. December has Christmas, Hanukkah, Festivus, the annual end-of-the-season collapse of the Dallas Cowboys, and the awarding of Nobel Prizes. July contains the 31-day Bacchanal that is my birthday celebration. Had it been any of those months, I wouldn't have stood a chance. But February? I could totally do February. All I had to do was make it through the NFL championship game, and I was home free. By my third day of sobriety, I was seriously on edge. In my normal everyday life, it's not completely unprecedented, nor does it even seem painfully difficult for me to go three, four, even five days without touching a drop— but the fact that I'd made a conscious decision to abstain from drinking was gumming up the work, something fierce. I'd committed myself to staying straight. And commitment is one thing I've never really been any good at. So around about dinner time, I received a text message from a woman I'd been seeing off and on. She asked if I'd like to meet her out for a drink, which in the casual dating parlance of Los Angeles translates roughly to, hey, want to hook up? I typed, sure, where? I was about to hit send when I suddenly experienced a pang of something that felt an awful lot like guilt, and I couldn't have a drink to make it go away either. Three lousy days and you're already given up? Guilt jeered. What's the point? I shot back. It's not like I'm quitting booze forever anyway, and I could do it if I wanted. What's the difference if I resume drinking now or 25 days from now? The difference is you promised yourself you'd stop for a while, that clever bastard retorted. If you break that promise, you're a fucking weakling. I'm not a weakling, I protested. Yes, you are, Gilt insisted. A weakling and a drunk. Oh, so now I'm a drunk too? How do you figure? Because if you weren't a drunk, you could handle not drinking for one measly month. Listen, Gilt, I don't have to drink. I want to. There's a difference, you know. Do tell, Gilt said. Look, Gilt, this woman is really great. She wants to meet for a drink and, well, you know, what guy in his right mind wouldn't want to do that? But nobody's saying you can't go meet this woman and do whatever. Go for it. Let her have cocktails. You order club soda. Yeah, I said, but then she'll wonder why I'm not ordering a real drink and I'll have to explain and I don't feel like getting into all that. It's easier just to have the drink. Wait, get into all what? Guild asked. I was getting irritated. Get into anything, man. I don't know. Like the reasons I decided not to drink for a while. Jeez. What are the reasons? Oh, come on. Give me a break. 
Is it because instead of going out and making a great impression on a powerful TV producer who literally could have changed your life, you got bombed and made a complete ass of yourself? He got drunk that night too, I countered. Whose floor did he wind up sleeping naked on? You know what, man? Fuck you. You think I'm a weakling? I'll show you how weak I am. I sent a text to my lady friend. Said, trying out a new prescription allergy medication. Can't drink. Come over here instead? Sure, she wrote back. See, I said to guilt, perhaps too smugly. No problem. By the morning of day five, I was feeling pretty good about myself. Things had gone swimmingly with the woman on day three, and the following night I'd gone bowling with friends and didn't touch a drop. Let me just repeat that so I know it happened. I went bowling and didn't drink. That's like skiing without snow. I bet Jesus couldn't even do that. And I had a great time. Turns out I'm a far better bowler sober than I am sauced. The pins are just so much easier to see without the booze goggles on. Hell, it was also damn easy. I began to wonder why I insisted on making things so hard on myself by drinking all the time. As day five wore on, however, a feeling of trepidation came over me, no doubt because I was innately aware that the Super Bowl loomed ahead on day six. Long before I decided to give up drinking, I'd accepted an invitation to a party that an actor friend of mine was throwing in the Hollywood Hills. There was sure to be an obscene amount of alcohol, drugs, and gambling there. Certainly it would prove to be an environment that no reasonable person who's trying to remain sober would willingly subject himself to. Thank goodness, then, that I am not a reasonable person. I'm more the daredevil thrill-seeker type. To me, this party represented the ultimate challenge. It was the Mount Everest of abstinence, and I would climb it, goddammit. Indeed, I was convinced that if I could emerge from this Super Bowl party unsauced, I would have proven to myself that, much like Sir Edmund Hillary himself, there's nothing I can't do once I set my mind to it. Still, I had a few lingering doubts, both about attending the Super Bowl party and about quitting uh, drinking in general. In the hopes of clearing a few things up, I put a call into the one guy I knew who was a bona fide expert on both drinking and not drinking, and someone I knew who would shoot absolutely painfully straight with me, my dad. The guy who introduced me to bars all those years ago, and the guy who's been alcohol-free for decades now. Here's how the key parts of the conversation played out. So, Dad, what finally made you quit drinking? My dad said, It dawned on me that I was either going to quit drinking or I was going to die. Wow, that's pretty heavy. It was heavy. And crazy. Literally. I'd learned some truly insane behavior because I was an alcoholic. I was a crazy person. So I asked him what the hardest part was about quitting. Why are you asking me this, he said. You thinking about quitting? Yeah, but only for a month. And then my dad didn't say anything. What? I said. Why would you do that? Just to prove to myself that I can. And then my dad didn't say anything again. What? Well, Dan, if you need to stop for a month, that's a good sign you probably need to stop permanently. Why do you say that? And my dad said, because why would anyone even consider it if it wasn't a problem? And I said, because too much of anything can be a bad thing, right? So I'll take a break, clean out the pipes, hit the reset button and all that. And again, my dad didn't say anything. Dad, what? I'm sorry, Dan, he said, but if someone feels as though they need to stop drinking or if people close to them are suggesting it, there's no doubt in my mind there's a problem. And then I didn't say anything. 
What? My dad said. This isn't how I imagined this conversation playing out. To which he replied, did you expect me to tell you it's perfectly normal for someone who claims to not have a problem with alcohol to suddenly decide they need to give up alcohol? And I said, claims not to. So you think I have a drinking problem? I don't know, he said. Do you think you have a drinking problem? You sound like my freaking shrink. But no, I don't. Then there you have it, he said. Look, let's forget about why for now. What I want to know now is this. What advice would you give to someone who's trying to quit drinking, yet has to go to a party where there's going to be booze and drugs and all sorts of other temptations? And my dad asked, why would anyone who's trying to quit drinking go to a party like that? Well, I don't know, Dad. Let's just say they do. What advice would you give them? He said, I'd tell them to quit fooling themselves. Oh, great. Well, thanks, Dad. I appreciate the insight. Danny asked, yeah, Dad. You sure you're okay? Yeah, Dad. I'm good. As expected, the Super Bowl party was off the hook. Beer, booze, famous people, and a game so exciting would turn out to be the most watched TV program of all time. Everyone was drinking and having a fabulous time. Everyone but me, that is. Oh, I was having fun, all right, but I was determined to stick to my guns and stay sober. You see, while I believe my dad had made a legitimate point, why would someone who didn't suspect on some level they might have a drinking problem ever feel the need to quit drinking? But I wasn't completely buying into it. I could see the shades of gray that my dad had overlooked. In my opinion, a major failing of the 12-step treatment system is that it keeps harping on the concept of denial as being a key component of alcoholism. The way my dad and his ilk see it, alcoholics have a pathological penchant for overestimating their ability to control their drinking and that anyone who believes otherwise is full of shit. In other words, if you think you're not fooling yourself, you're fooling yourself which means the conscientious soul can't win. As soon as you deem it necessary to question whether you have an alcohol problem, you automatically have one. I'm no logician, but something seems off about this. And the more you argue this point, the drunker you look. Look, I'm not denying that AA has done an immense amount of good in the world. Like giving my dad back, putting countless out-of-control drunks back on a track to meaningful life, completing the narrative arc of countless movies and memoirs. I'm simply arguing that it has the same sort of groupthink problem that exists in the military and in cults. There's no denying groupthink can be effective in certain situations, i.e. war or full-blown alcoholism, but it's also famously intolerant of creativity and fantastically bad at handling shades of gray. I hesitate to knock AA too hard, though, because I believe my dad is 100% correct about one thing. Had it not been for AA, he'd be six feet under. That said, there's another school of thought espoused by what's known as the moderation management community. Really, that's a thing. This progressive theory posits that there exists such a thing as problem drinkers. Those who sometimes wake up snockered in strangers' homes, for instance. So these problem drinkers aren't necessarily alcoholics. For me, this critical distinction goes back to what my friend and mentor Hunter S. Thompson once said about the edge that there is no honest way to explain it because the only people who really know where it is are the ones who have gone over. For now, I'm simply not able or willing to concede that my occasionally going overboard means I am powerless over alcohol. Occasional overindulgence doesn't make me or you or anyone else an alcoholic more than occasionally eating junk food makes someone a glutton. 
Sure, I like to drink, and yes, sometimes I like to drink a little too much than is probably good for me. But in the grand scheme of things, I believe I'm doing just fine. I enjoy the hell out of my life. I dig my friends. I love the places we hang out. I've got a career predicated on alcohol consumption. It's a pretty fucking good gig as far as things you do to pay the bills can go. And if thinking all that means I'm a delusional drunk, well then go ahead and elect me governor of the state of denial. Just don't expect me to show up for work on Monday. So I felt like I was made of steel when I woke up on day seven of the sobriety experiment. I'd made it through Super Bowl Sunday without so much as a sip of alcohol. And in the process, I'd proven to myself that hell, maybe I wasn't as much of a hopeless lush as I thought. Plus, I felt as spry as I had in a long time. I could think clearly and my muscles didn't ache. No shakes or bed spins and fewer if any spontaneous nosebleeds. I think I may have even dropped a few pounds. Frank Sinatra's famous quote floated through my head, the one about how he felt sorry for people who didn't drink because when they woke up in the morning, that was as good as they were going to feel all day. Well, maybe Frank wasn't as spot on as I'd previously thought. I mean, I love a great buzz as much as the next bipolar crooner, but the hangovers don't get any easier to handle the older you get. Just ask some of Frat's, uh, Frank's rap pack pals. On second thought, don't. They're all dead from liver failure. Later that night, I got another text from my friend with benefits, again asking if I'd like to meet her for a drink. Sure, I said, and she suggested one of my favorite Santa Monica cocktail bars. They make a mean gimlet at that place. The thought of it made my mouth water a little. I could handle it, though. I'd stick with vodka soda, only I'd make sure the bartender knew that when I said vodka and soda, I really meant just soda. Or maybe I'd go with the allergy medication excuse again. Hey, last time I checked, clean and sober doesn't mention anything about honesty. It's well known that drunks trying to keep drinking lie all the time. I never realized that drunks trying to stop drinking lie more than politicians. As I entered the bar, I heard a familiar voice inside my head. It was that pain-in-the-ass guilt again. But he was singing a different tune this time. You know, man, it kind of sucks to waste a whole night with a beautiful lady in great cocktail bar only drinking club soda, don't you think? figures. Guild always was a two-faced motherfucker. I didn't drink that night, but four days later I did. In retrospect, going bowling again was too much temptation for fate to handle. Hey, I'd made it 11 days. 17 shy of the 28 I'd been going for, not even halfway, but it was okay. The way I figured I'd made it through the Super Bowl, that was victory enough. Besides, if I have this whole denial thing figured right, Staying sober to the end of the month would indicate that I felt the need to do so, which would mean I really was a drunk, right? So I had a drink just to prove I wasn't. Oh, I knew that logic class I took in college would come in handy one day. So there you have it, folks. My dry January, February story. By the way, many of the commenters on my dry January Facebook post suggested that instead of abstaining from alcohol for a month, they'd prefer to cut it out for two days or like two days during the week. Not four or five days during the week, um, two. I am friends with some committed drinkers. Speaking of drinking, a little message from our friends at Savage and Cook, the makers of the Burning Chair Bourbon. In 1998, when he was just 25, onophilic phenom Dave Finney founded Oren Swift Cellars and promptly turned it into a behemoth, 
on the strength of powerful Zinfandel-driven wines such as The Prisoner. We all remember The Prisoner. Come on. Famous wine. So today at 46, Dave Finney is wowing the whiskey world with the Burning Chair Bourbon, which is $59 a bottle. This bourbon is produced at his newly built Savage and Cook Distillery on Mare Island in Viejo, California. That's up near Napa. Following a four-year fling with new American oak and a quickie inside barrels from Finney's Cabernet Base project, Projects, the bourbon is titrated to 88 proof with pristine water from the Alexander Valley. And then what goes into the non-traditional black bottle is a lively spirit boasting an array of pleasantries, including vanilla bean, maple, and baked apple flavor. The initial sweetness gives way to the bite of citrus zest and barrel char, creating great balance and complexity. From one of the industry's true iconoclasts, this is boho booze at its best. For more, go to savageandcook.com. That's savageandcook.com. Cook with an E. Or go to their Instagram at savageandcook. Again, cook with an E. So while we're talking about it, I guess we can roll out a couple, we'll wrap up with some new products. The holidays are coming, so get out a pen and paper, write this down. It's important. You're looking for stuff. We'll, we'll roll with the dry January thing a little bit more. As we talked about throughout the show, the sober curious movement is gaining traction across the globe. Drinkers are seeking alcohol-free alternatives to classic spirits. Enter Liars Non-Alcoholic Spirits. That's Liar, L-Y-R-E, not L-I-A-R, L-Y-R-E, yeah. It's a range of alcohol-free spirits that just launched this month in the U.S. Uh, they got American Malt, they got Dry London Spirit, Aperitif Rosso, they got a Spiced Cane Spirit. I tried this stuff, and I'm not going to lie, it's good. I should send some to my dad. So Liar is named after the Liar Bird, which is an Australian breed known for its ability to mimic any sound. So you get it? You get it? They're mimicking classic cocktails, but in an alcohol-free manner, of course. Uh, each bottle of their non-alcoholic spirits range sells for $36 per 700 milliliter. That's 50 milliliters less than your standard bottle of alcohol. It's a great gift for the teetotalers in your life. Appreciate the taste of a good espresso martini or daiquiri, but they can't handle the buzz. So check it out. Liars, L-Y-R-E-S.com is their site. Uh, another great one, man. I oh, love it. Uh, Widow Jane, The Vaults, 2019. You know, and, uh, the Widow Jane is a Brooklyn-based distiller. In September, they rolled out, this is the first ever expression in a collection, I guess they're going to do this annually, of mature bourbons uh, sourced from various facilities in the flyover states. Um, this one, the vaults 2019 is a marriage of 14 year and older Tennessee, Indiana whiskeys selected by their head distiller, Lisa Wicker. So she took them back to Brooklyn and finished them and blended them at the Rick house there on Conover street and red hook. Yeah. Red hook. That's right, man. The hypnosis quotient is off the charts. Uh, so it's 99 proof kind of smells like old baseball mitts and birch beer. Uh, I, I love it, man. All kinds of shit going on in there. Like there's burnt barbecue rib flavor, vanilla ice cream, some citrus, some creme brulee. Ah, Brooklyn whiskey. Bad news is it's $150 a bottle, but buy it. And if you don't drink it, keep it. You'll be able to sell that in like 
the next year you'll be able to sell it for four hundred dollars. I promise you that. All right. With uh, holidays coming, looking for stocking stuffers. I got another one. I just tried this cool. It's called Neft Vodka. N E F T. It's interesting. It comes in a hundred milliliter oil can, like a barrel. It looks like an oil barrel, a little mini oil barrel. Uh, they, they they sent me and it said it was inspired by the Siberian oil pioneers of the 1970s. I mean, who who wasn't inspired by those fuckers? I mean, guys, assuming they're guys. Siberia, for Christ's sake. It had to be guys. So they make this at uh, a family-run distillery in Austria. That's where they make this Neft vodka. And they got that pristine, oxygen-rich, alpine spring water in there. Uh, They use four different types of rye. So what I would say about this vodka is it's creamy and smooth. A little bit of earthiness on the finish. It's good. I like it. It took double gold two years in a row at the San Francisco World Spirits Competition. That's the biggest one going. Yours truly is a judge up there. They 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 uh, took two years in a row um, in the rye vodka category, 2018, 2019. They originally launched it in California, but now they're kind of all over the place. You can find it on reservebar.com as well as other online sites. And then I want to tell you about a little wine Got to have some wine for the holidays. Fendler, that's spelled P-F-E-N-D-L-E-R. Fendler. Fendler. They've been growing grapes in Sonoma uh, up in the Petaluma Gap for 25 years. They're one of the leading uh, artisanal winemakers up there. They got two new things out. They got a uh, 2018 Fendler Chardonnay, which is $45. And then they got a Pinot Noir, which is $50. Five dollars. Uh, this vintage, I, I think, really kind of captures the characteristics of that climate up there. You know, uh, the Chardonnay's got a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of depth to it. There's uh, uh, just textural. You know, it, it's a little chewy that way. I just really enjoy it. And the Pinot Noir uh, is kind of influenced by that high altitude terroir up there. Uh, it's an intense wine. A lot of minerality. Um, I, I just. I, I think it's elegant. I'd say it's elegant, but elegant and balanced. It's a really good one. You're, you're not going to be disappointed if you go with this Pinot Noir. And uh, I kind of feel like that's all I got for you on this one, folks. I, you know, I, I, I got nobody to thank, no guests. I got everybody. I guess I got to thank everybody that chimed in on my Facebook page. And I'd love to hear from you if you got some thoughts on uh, Dry January. Hit me up on Twitter or Instagram at the Imbiber T H E I M B I B E R. Um, I've been playing with some music lately. Yeah, I'm gonna start mixing my own stuff to end the shows with. I like it. Yeah. It's good, right? Come on. Stay with me. 